Munia, I've got breaking news. Very important breaking news about the future of uh, crime, the crime wave and safety, uh, family, homeowner safety in Seattle. Uh, this is a you know an ongoing continuing story that we've been covering. You know, to let me just remind you, Munya, that last week at this time on the show, we uh, let our listeners know that fully like 350 Seattle police officers had yet to turn in uh, their slip of paper that would bring them into compliance with the city's vaccine mandate, and that they had only one week left to comply. And it was clear to everyone that, you know, Seattle might be on the verge of losing, you know, close to 400 officers who were going to refuse to get the vaccine, uh, you know, because of the infringement on their rights, et cetera. Um, So that was a week ago. Um, Obviously, we were very worried about this. And uh, I just want to ask you, Munya, maybe, you know, how many how many cops do you think at this point today end of day, Monday, October 18th, the deadline for complying with the city-wide employee vaccine mandate out of the nearly 400 uh, who were technically out of compliance last week. Uh, how many do you think are still, uh, are still like riding high on that, on that freedom train? Well, they all sounded very serious about it and it seemed like it was so fundamental. So, I mean, I would have to assume at least 350, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, from The Stranger, according to Hannah Krieg and The Stranger here. Um, as of 10 a.m. this morning, 99% of the city's 11,000 employees have complied, leaving 1% or about 150 individuals who have yet to submit proof of vaccination or receive an exemption of those 150 24 work at the Seattle Police Department. 24 cops. 24. 24 have failed to turn in their paperwork. That was as of 10 a.m. this morning. Like by the end of the day, they, I mean, that's probably down to like six now who are like technically like suspended anyway for like being caught on video, (laughs) beating the shit out of someone for a day, you know, and they're going to be back tomorrow and turn that in to their sergeant or something. Yeah. Wow. What do you know? Much ado about nothing. Uh, Hannah Krieg mentions in this article calls out um, uh, Brandy Cruz for, you know, really ginning up fear of uh, yeah losing like 400 officers like uh, the cops talking about how, yeah, gosh, you know, even these 24 uh, officers significant since we're in a staffing crisis. Uh, like for one second. We did not really believe that anything was going to happen. No, this is exactly what we said. This is what we said all along. And, you know, like as much as we'd like to think that these people have like are lost in the sauce in the culture war, it's just it's just that um, <laughs> like they're not giving up their cushy ass job over over this bullshit you know yeah, they like, have fun with it <laughs> the culture war is a game essentially yeah. it's a fun thing you do as a pastime to get you riled up and they did that for the last you know two months since or whatever it was since the mandate was announced they had their fun and they held out and you know they all on friday they all turned it in you know what i mean like yep, exactly or they sent the email at nine this morning you know yeah, yeah. now like shit's real you just you know hang it up and move on to the next thing they all got it. They all went out and got it. Probably a lot of them who were still holding out had 
already gotten it like weeks earlier and we're still like for again for the thrill of it just not turning it in just because they <laughs> liked those no they loved the stories yeah you know they yeah they got Randy the stories they're in the about. new york post they're with mary right, yeah. i mean they're getting national fucking, fox news even yeah when they they talk about those you know three four hundred officers they're like yeah one of those is me you know i have my vaccine <laughs> but only i know that <laughs> <Right>. i'm not <laughs> gonna tell the city i'm not gonna tell the goddamn city until the last minute when i have to yeah, eat fucking that badass. You know what else is badass? Protein. What's badass? <laughs> um, this uh, we saw from a Jason Rantz tweet here. Uh, some officers plan on taking time off to decide what they will do long term. They don't seem. <laughs> they don't. I'm sure. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm sure those 24 officers all like took their vacation today. Uh-huh. Yeah. They don't seem eager to stay with SPD. Yeah, we keep hearing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, others explain that they're going to leave SPD by the end of the year as a result. Yeah, I mean, don't, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Other officers took these photos in protest of the mandate. And oh my God, this Dude. is some of the sweetest collection of half assed fucking staged Gadsden flag photos I've ever seen. That's right. SPD cops uh, using fucking painter's tape to drape uh, like some ripped up Gadsden flag to the side of their cruisers and, and pose in various locales around Seattle. It's so fucking funny. As you noted, Munya, um, there's three photos here. In two of them, it's clearly the exact same flag because it has the same <laughs> rip in it. Yeah. So, so like different cars, it's a different cruiser. It's on two different cruisers. They have different yeah, two different jobs. cruisers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the same flag just repeated. Like, so they're passing it around for these photos. For all we know, it's the same one in the fir- in the other photo too, just before they fucking ripped it. Yeah, before they, they probably it. they probably had it draped on one of the cruisers and got caught like in the fucking wheel driving around and tore the bottom off, and then they taped it like that to the other two. Yeah. I mean, again, this is just like, this is what the culture war is all about. It's about like having fun with it. Not it's not about being tread on, not being tread on, even though you're the literal cops for the state, um, you're literally you the know, boot of the state, <laughs> literally who, who has done more treading on the fucking free citizens of America? My God, the fucking boot of the state is telling you not to tread on them. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Over oh a God. vaccine mandate. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Over. Anyway, you know, be glad to know everybody. All the Seattle pigs on the street now, you know, they've been vaccinated and they hated yep. it. They hated it. Honestly, actually, they probably didn't care. They just yeah. liked saying they hated it. That that's all they know is how to how to like act out aggrievement. Yeah, uh, and they're just gonna and- get more aggrieved because. Uh, I don't see any time coming where <laughs> we're not going to uh, hear them. You know, the more, like we said before, the more power that they get, the more unchecked, um, you know, unaccountability they have, the more aggrieved they will get. And this is just like yeah. the start, I think, of <laughs> just like the more insane psychotic agreement because the puck is not going the way of any accountability that could change this election cycle. Um, I'm not really confident that the mayors, either of them uh, who are running will do much about that. Um, You know, but uh, 
you know, if NTK and Nikita get elected, um, you know, there's going to be some heat. And I think, you know, we're going to see some more insane shit like that. So if for anything else, you know, vote NTK, make these pigs mad, make the boot of the state who think that they're getting tread on just even more furious. Dueling cats and flags forever. Yeah. That's America. Don't tread on me. Welcome back to Mechanical Freak. I'm Greg, and I'm coming to you from a suburban Tacoma hotel called Home 2. And Munya is lost in New York. Yeah, that's uh, actually a uh, sequel to Kanye's Bound 2. Uh, you know, it's uh, his post-divorce uh, Bound 2, and it's called Home 2, where he got kicked out of the house and had to go to the hotel. You haven't, it's right. unreleased. I'm, you haven't heard of it yet. <laughs> I'm in Home 2. The Revenge. <laughs> Home to Electric Boogaloo. That's a really dystopic name for a hotel. Yeah, I don't know why they call the it Hilton. that. That is the Hilton I mean, it's Home like to. <laughs> ex- extended stay and residence in were taken, and they're like, fuck it, home to the other place you live now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's literally the numerous home and the numeral. Does it feel, like a, does it feel like, like you're. Yeah, sure. It, it's that. Is it straight to DVD or is it uh you know showing in theaters? What what was your review of this hotel? This is like a uh, cheap like Netflix uh, rom com, you know. <laughs> so it's a rom com created by That's the Netflix the algorithm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's good. No, it looks nice. You're on land, so you know this is going to be a wow, wow. Dual beds. Hey, if anyone wants to come to Home Tune, need its night to crash. Greg has not one, but two beds. In the home. That's <laughs> yes. that's where the number two comes from, actually. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So that's where I am. Good times. Um, nice. So you know, sad news today. Uh, Munya, real sad mm. news. Um, let me just read a headline for you here. Colin Powell who won the first Gulf War and was humbled by the second, <laughs> dead at 84. No. That's my favorite of all the Colin Powell death headlines. That's from uh, Daily Beast. Um, and I just love the, the premise of that, um, that someone won the first Gulf War and that I guess it was Colin Powell. Um, yeah, so he died of COVID. Yeah. But like, I just want to take, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are going to talk about this like a lot of podcasts can be a lot of articles written in the next few days i don't give a fuck because i just really hate this man um colin powell okay so if you read these articles there this drivel that's being put out and i'm going to read some of this uh daily beast article you get a real specific sort of narrative that is like the colin powell uh you know, tar- tarnished legacy narrative that oh, he was, you know, one of America's great heroes who people were desperate to have as the first black president, you know, a black Republican uh, general, like, you know, decorated general and victor- victorious general first, like, you know, victorious uh, general in a while. And then, you know, oh, that little whoopsie daisy at the UN really tarnished his career. <laughs> um and uh, I just want to take a moment to discuss how uh, what a big crock of shit that is, because uh, Colin Powell uh, actually has always been a scumbag. 
and uh, more specifically, a bag man. Uh, so like a scumbag man uh, mm. for the like empire, basically. Um, so let me just read uh, a bit of this here. Okay, so it was November. This is so again, this is Daily Beast. This is by, oh, this is Eleanor Clift. Of course. Oh, my God. She's the uh, cursed ancient paleolib from the McLaughlin Report. Uh, long defunct. Uh, so I don't think anyone knows she's still alive. Anyway, it was November 8th, 1995, and Colin Powell had just concluded a 25-city tour to promote his memoir, My American Journey. Huge crowds greeted him wherever he went. His poll numbers soared, and so did expectations for his candidacy. All of Washington and much of the country tuned in to watch the retired four-star general announce if he would be a candidate for president. The son of Jamaican immigrants, he might have become the first black president in U.S. history, but Powell stepped up to the microphone and declined the mantle. Blah, blah, blah. He, ag- he oh, agonized over his decision, blah, blah, blah. Um, basically, it goes on to talk about how, you know, he, he really came up uh, in the army and then in sort of Republican administrations and then came the Gulf War. And he, you know, he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and led that and uh, was victorious. Like the headline says, won the Gulf War. And uh, the Gulf War was basically like um, just like a a massive global empire, like bombing uh, a tiny, like uh, broke disorganized country back to the stone age uh famously uh murdering thousands of iraqi soldiers like from just bombing them on the highway of death as it's as it became called because like just like miles of column of like trucks and apcs and tanks uh just got just leveled and burnt in place by just relentless uh you know american fire from miles away not exactly like a heroic deed, uh, but nonetheless, it was the narrative like that America wanted and needed. Like, oh, my God, we finally won a fucking war. We'll pretend it's a real one. Like Panama wasn't good enough uh, to get us over Vietnam. And like, so we'll make this guy a hero. And because like, I, I guess because he was like a guy, you know, he was like, oh, he's the guy from who led the army in the, the Gulf War. We want him to be president now, I guess. Um, and then, so then, but then it goes on during the second Gulf war, Powell warned the second president Bush about the risks of invading Iraq, invoking the well-known, yeah, he warned, he warned him. He He warned warned him. him. He he invoked the well-known retailer pottery barn rule that if you break it, you own it. Stop, um, stop, 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 stop. That's, that's, you know, uh, the, the, the famous oh, pottery barn rule. That's and how I live my life, just out of brand slogans. Yeah. At, at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2007, Powell credited New York Times columnist Tom Friedman with applying the rule to Iraq and said he told Bush, once you break it, you're going to own it. And we're going to be responsible for 26 million people standing there looking at us, blah, blah, blah. 
And it says Powell pushed for more diplomacy, including going to the United Nations. This is really this is really sick from Eleanor Clift here. I mean, how do you he even write that with a straight face, man? Trying to basically say that he was pushing for more diplomacy. But what, what? she goes on to describe is him going to the United Nations in order to convince the United Nations to to authorize attacking Iraq. That's not what people mean to usually buy. That's trying to build up this idea that he was against the war, that yeah. he was cautioning against it, that he – and. Then by saying like he was pushing for diplomacy, you know, you would take that as like as an alternative to war. But he specifically went to the United Nations very famously to make the case to the world for the war in Iraq to try and get the U.N. to authorize the war, uh, which was, you know, I mean, this was globally unpopular uh, thing they were doing, ramping up to war in Iraq. And they wanted to get people on board and they sent the sort of most trusted face they had in the um uh in the administration at that time he was the you know uh secretary of state and it says here he went uh to the united nations where he gave a speech advocating for military action that he would later regret oh with his considerable rhetorical skills he told the un security council on february 5th 2003 that there was no doubt in my mind quote unquote that Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was working to obtain key components needed to produce a nuclear weapon. The invasion of Iraq launched on March 20th with an air assault dubbed shock and awe. So, yeah, again, the diplomacy he was pushing for more of was convincing people to the world to go. He failed. I mean, the UN did not, like, back that war. Um, Convinced a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people that it was – Legit, though, like a lot of people around the world and this country were like, oh, Colin Powell's Powell's this respectable guy. He's this respectable black Republican general who, you know, wouldn't lie to us. He's the real deal guy. He's the most like no bullshit. Like he's not a politician. You know, he was a real general and turned down like a political career, like, I mean, running for office. So that it carried weight. They sent him for a reason. He was the most like respected guy in the administration. And what's funny about that is that that there's no reason that he should have been. He's done this. So this narrative up to now is like he was this great guy who had this great like career in the army where he was, you know, legitimately at any given time in his career, one of, if not the highest ranking uh, black American in the army, in the military. And, you know, that's an achievement of a kind. But like. It's this idea that, yeah, he was this they, – they built this brand brand around him with basically CNN, you know, in the Gulf War, which like every, all of America just ate up with popcorn uh, and such that people were wanting him to run for president. And like see on the, on the strength of that, he went to the UN and fucking lied, lied to the world, like sold this fucking lousy like pile of shit that they were calling evidence and said it with a straight face. 
Yeah, and everyone knew it was a pile of shit, too. This is not, like, just after the fact. Like, this was something that we were seeing in real or, time. Or at the very and, least, you could know if you wanted to know and if you were looking into it. But a lot of – but it, it's hard because, like, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post were all saying, yeah, this stuff's legit. Now, like, Knight Ritter newspapers weren't. They were questioning all this shit, but no one re- – you know, who reads that yeah, shit? Yeah, right, All right. the networks, you know, CNN. Oh, yeah, they ate it up. NBC. <laughs> We're all selling this shit and they were all selling. They all sold this line that, that, um, that Colin Powell. Well, I mean, yes, some of this is sketchy, right? Some of this doesn't sound, you know, they're not telling us the evidence, but the, the utility of sending Colin Powell was, was like, well, he's actually seen the stuff and he is telling us that it's real. So it must be yeah, when you see Dick lie. Cheney on TV saying like, well, you know, we don't want like the smoking gun to come in the form of a mushroom cloud. You're like, yeah, well, you're like the slimiest fucking freak alive. <laughs> but we don't, you know, a lot of people certainly like a lot of Democrats don't feel like, um, you know, taking the word of Dick Cheney. But Colin Powell, even Democrats fucking love Colin Powell for some reason. OK, now I'm going to tell you a little bit about Colin Powell. Uh, Colin Powell uh, first becomes of uh, minor public interest in 1969 when, uh, as a major in Vietnam, he becomes in, uh, involved and and uh, called for questioning and uh, in part of the investigation of the My Lai massacre. Uh, this is one of uh, of of. Oh, absolutely reprehensible genocidal war uh, on the Vietnamese people that the U.S. was prosecuting, where, you know, this country was bombing millions from the air, flattening their country, their industry, their farmland, you know, poisoning their fucking uh, wilderness. Uh, they were also going in and, you know, in the dead of night, uh, and murdering people in their homes and, and kidnapping suspected communists. And, but one thing happened in March of 68 that actually, uh, crossed the line for the U S military, uh, which is a particular company of, uh, soldiers led by a sniveling, uh, freak <laughs> called William Calley, um, did basically what, the U S was doing every day, which was just murdering civilians by the score, but did it in broad daylight in the sight of a bunch of people and a large number of enlisted personnel who, whose job it was not specifically to do that on a large scale all at once. Um, there were lots of people whose job was exactly that, you know, whether from the air or again in the dead of night secretly. Um, or as collateral damage, this was different. This they went into a, a um, hamlet called Mylay, and uh, by the time they were done, the, they'd killed over like 350 people or something. Uh, just massacred men, women, and children. Uh, just at gunpoint, like a company of uh, army soldiers. And um, th- three months later, Colin Powell as a major was assigned to the become an executive officer of that division, uh, that, uh, C company that William Calley was, uh, Lieutenant William Calley was in command of, uh, when the massacre happened was a part of, and he becomes the guy in charge of all the records for the 
whole uh, division, keeping track of all the shit that happens and all the paperwork associated with it and other shit like that. And, you know, at one point, uh, people in the higher up in the army start getting like letters from soldiers who were witness or who heard about this stuff. And the record is basically that, um, you know, these things came back to Colin Powell, him being the guy in charge of um, the keeping of all this kind of information was asked to look into it. Mm -hmm. And basically um, he asked like three or four officers in the division were like, Hey, did we like kill a bunch of people like women and children? And they said no. And he dropped it uh, and didn't look into it. Then it got kicked up to a higher level and he uh, where like someone higher up in DOD was investigating and he is on the record in that investigation, um, basically lying. And then after that, that doesn't come to any conclusion that investigation finds like uh, nothing seems to have happened. And he also doesn't investigate any further at that point. Later it comes out, it becomes a big you know scandal, including in the media. And, you know, he's just one of, several people who, you know, clearly lied at various points or also went absolute with no effort to like find anything out. His involvement in my lay, like, again, he was not even a part of that. He wasn't even part of that division when it happened, but you know, it, at the very least he, this is like very much the cliff notes version of this, but like at, at the very least he like was part of an army bureaucracy that was absolutely totally used to just like, trying to not find anything out about war crimes that it was doing, you know, um, and absolutely part of that system that like just tries to bury everything without ever finding out about it. Another possibility that a lot of people have suggested based on, you know, a lot more circumstantial stuff is that that's why the fuck he was sent there, that he was a fucking bag man that was sent there. The second, uh, they, that this started coming up, uh, up the chain, and was sent there basically to be the guy in charge of the records to fucking cover it up because later it was found like they had destroyed a lot of the records after like the second wave of investigation. Um, and he was there like three months, like uh, four months after it happened, he was, you know, it's about the time when stuff started sniffing around. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, maybe slanderously accused him of being the guy who was sent there to basically cover it up. Now he, then, uh, the thing is in an organization like the U S army, a, a like globe trotting fucking war crimes circus, like that's how you get ahead. You know, two years later, he's again, a guy who was implicated in covering up in like loss of records and documents and failure to investigate serious things was made a white house fellow uh, and is like serves in the Nixon administration still in the army. Uh, so his career is just like taking off at that point. So he then bounces around in various jobs, always promotions in uh, the Republican administrations rising up in the army. When Reagan comes in, he becomes a special assistant to secretary of defense. Uh, what's fuck is that psycho's name casper weinberger awesome fucking reagan yeah, that name. um uh casper weinberger is like the nut job who like helped reagan usher in the new cold war and like rebuilding all, like 
started the wave of like um, that still continues to this day of like finding and buying and building the most expensive non-working sort of defense programs you can you can imagine from like shitty bombers that uh, just suck ass to like Star Wars. Um, and anyway, so he's there for like the first half of the administration and then he moves into eventually being um, dep- a deputy national security advisor in the Reagan White House. And during this time, this is when uh, the Reagan administration, among its many crimes, it's probably, I mean, probably it's, it's worst as a category is the anti-communist dirty wars it was prosecuting in uh, Central America in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, where the administration was paying off-duty cops and other psychos to form death squads and hunt down revolutionary comrades and just also murder just uh, villages full of civilians. And, you know, lest we, we, we wonder, like, well, how much do we know uh, Colin Powell was involved in the Dirty Wars? Well, let me just uh, read a quote from his own memoirs. I was at the time the chief administration advocate for the Contras. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, that sounds pretty cut and dry. I don't know. (laughs) He justifies this knowing that like, you know, uh, these were, you know, murderers um, who destroyed these countries and murdered, you know. Yeah. Like just to, just for our listeners, like the, the Contras are like, we're one of the most just like brutal death squads in the world at this time. And they're getting funded by the U S and Nicaragua against the Sandinistas. And, you know, the Contras really just represented the most, just like awful repulsive, um, qualities of, um, I guess how to, uh, you know, run, uh, empire, run a society, how to just like discipline an entire working class in Nicaragua from, you know, having Mm -hmm. and organizing for a better life. It's, um, a complete, uh, nightmare for the people of Nicaragua. Um, you know, and they're, they're a death squad and a gang and also a organized criminal organization. And part of their organized crime was moving drugs internationally. Um, the Contras moved a lot of cocaine and, you know, sure enough, this happened in the eighties. Oh, it just so happens too that, well, there was a lot of cracking cocaine that showed up in the U S in the eighties. Um, just due to declassified documents, this is not, um, you know, just like tying loose ends. A lot of this is like pretty uh, common knowledge at this point that um, that the U.S. government helped facilitate and um, you know pushed a lot of those uh, drugs into the U.S. too, and helped the Contras actually uh, launder that money. So um, you know, the U.S.'s relationship with the Contras, um, the way that they brutalized, murdered. Um, you know, tens of thousands of people in Nicaragua, um, as well as just like, you know, propped up this criminal organization against the Sandinistas who are actually fighting for some real, um, real good, positive things. It's, this is always a side that U.S. empire is on because it actually gives them, you know, a certain level of control and it's not a threat to capital. Um, and you just got to wonder why capital and the U.S. empire is so, uh, comfortable with uh, these kind of like test squads over, you know, people who are like advocating for more, well, um, you know, democracy and socialism and everything. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Colin Powell will tell you he justifies it in the same paragraph. You know, you know, knowing, knowing, you know, he doesn't go into the details of like the murders of the Contras or, you know, shipping crack into the streets of L.A. Um, but like he says, like, well, in an era of, you know, East West polarization, referring to the Cold War and our global anti-communist uh, war. Uh, well, you know, we worked with what we had. That's what he says. <laughs> And it's like that's it's I mean, funny, that's the funny how every like. everything every time the US just is working with what they have, it just turns out to be just a, a vicious right wing death cult. Wholesale murder. Yeah. 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 I funny mean how, how that's really all they for, are. For a fucking soldier, for someone who's supposed to be some noble fucking like soldier who came up in the ranks again, which is bullshit. Like as I'm detailing, like he basically came up in the ranks as a, as a right wing political bag man, like sent in to like cover shit up. And God knows that again, if you're the fucking chief advocate for the fucking Contras, then yeah, that, that involves covering up their fucking many crimes in, and the U S involvement in them. Like for a fucking soldier, supposedly who, you know, it's supposed to have this sort of like warrior nobility or something, this narrative around him, like the Contras that he was the chief advocate of were supposed were built by the Reagan administration as like an army of freedom fighters, like the, 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 fa- the equivalent of the founding fathers of, you know, of their countries. And, you know, if like George Washington and shit, that's like a rot line from Reagan. And, <laughs> but in fact, they refused to actually even fight real battles and they would just they, if if uh, you know actuals like Sandinista military units would try to fight them, they would run away and just go murder some civilians in a village. They just did terror. terror. Yeah, they wreaked terror. I mean, terror yeah. amongst Nicaragua. I mean, like so, seriously, it's 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 inc- it's almost hard to comprehend uh, if you really just don't read these like harrowing stories. Uh, it's and this was going it's on in- shocking. Different versions of this same thing was going on in El Salvador, Guatemala, other places. Yep. Um, you know, we fucking invaded Panama uh, that, again, he was very involved in. Uh, okay, so, you know, he then, I guess it's not surprising then that when he goes on to after the next to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs and then lead the first Bush administration's war, you know, Gulf War, in which, again, kind of similarly, like, ref- in a, in a sort of a different way, refuses to face the, you know, Iraqi army in open battle and just bombs their infrastructure and bombs them from miles away, you know, as they're like trapped on a highway. Um, you know, again, like the noble soldier. I mean, yeah, real bummer we didn't get him as our first black president. I totally skipped over like the key thing is like uh, he probably was very involved in the sort of big headline catastrophe of the dirty wars, which was the Orion Contra scandal. And in the fact in that he was probably also involved in covering that up in like, he was probably the guy who was uh, partly either partly running it with um, uh, Bush senior vice president or, or was called in to sweep it up under the rug, you know, and that's how he got, you know, Mostly successfully doing that is how he got to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the thing about oh, and by the way, like if you do want to learn more about um, you know uh, the U.S.'s involvement in Latin America and like the death squads that they funded, um, you can also read 
Greg Grandin's book, uh, Empire's Workshop. It's uh, it's one of another books that Greg Grandin wrote. Uh, he covers like the U.S. in the '80s and just uh, imperial wars in uh, Latin America. It's really good. Um, for Kuwait and um, the Gulf War, you know the the thing about the Gulf War, which is so fascinating, is that you know Iraq agreed to withdraw from Kuwait like over a three week period. Um, President Bush only gave him a week and the evacuation when Iraq was actually evacuating Kuwait, that's when the U S unleashed this wild, almost like montage worthy aerial slaughter where yeah, it was like fucking Michael Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it was, truly, like a Transformers it was movie. yeah, exactly. So, uh, over a so hundred thousand Iraqis, got murdered, which includes many civilians were just like killed in this just air raid. There was like yeah. maybe a few hundred U.S. casualties out of like a hundred thousand Iraqis dying in this. Yeah. So this is the highway of death. And I didn't mention when I said that, that, yeah, they were they weren't going toward battle. They were they were leaving. They were all pulling out of Kuwait and heading back to Baghdad on Highway 80. And they all just, you know, were vaporized. Um, so. Really cool. Really cool guy. Yeah. So that is the person who then is like touted as like, oh, man, this guy should run for president as a Republican. A guy who's been, again, a bag man for Republican, like arch right wing administrations uh, all this time that, you know, and then somehow is used, you know, as the voice of credibility to sell the Iraq war in 2003 uh, to the world with a bald lie. And um I'll just, you know, sum that up by like saying that like that is really how our empire works. Like that's how you get ahead in a world like this, in organizations like this, in the higher high brass of the defense department. Like you if you're the person who can come in and successfully cover up the fucking many crimes of the empire, like that's gonna be that's that's the person people are going to want to promote. That's the person they're going to want to have around. That's the person they're going to reward. And I think, I think it's pretty clear that's what happened to Colin Powell. He went in, yep. put his career at risk by being the guy who probably actually destroyed the documents. You can't slander the dead, <laughs> uh, you know, but got away with it and did it with a plum to where he was never implicated directly in any way that mattered for him and thus could be then immediately made a White House fellow, you know, and starts his like parallel uh, Republican administration advisory, you know, bureaucratic role what, with his rise in the army. And yeah, uh, scumbag, man. That's that's Colin Powell. Yeah, really awful shit. Gulf War also yeah. has a reputation for just a lot of lies in general, too. Uh, like, mm-hmm. I mean, the the types of lies that... You know, you'd hear are like, you know, the U.S. forces were needed to defend Saudi Arabia against um, the Iraqi invasion. Then that was debunked. So then there was another one saying, oh, Iraq displayed no interest in negotiating, which was an outright lie. The list goes on of like, you know, protecting human rights in Kuwait, you know, the whole deal there. There was like seven different lies, including that Iraq bafflingly, maybe you'll hear this later on, posed a nuclear threat. That was actually some what the Bush administration um, used as an excuse after the other, you know, few reasons for just doing that aerial, like Michael Bay style, like you said, Greg's like slaughter on Iraqis um, just didn't really hold up. 
this whole empire is based on these fake causes ballet lies. Um, and Colin Powell was, you know, the key executor of a lot of those. And that's why these people rise to the top. Now, not to say that if there wasn't, if Colin Powell just didn't pursue that, there would be someone stepping in his place to do it, right? Yeah. This is, I don't want to like, no. He's always a bag man. He, but he chose to be the bag man he and he executed it, it well and he was good at it. Um, yeah. And that's just, you know, that's his legacy. And it's just so funny to just like read all of this bullshit that's coming out today. Uh, let's take one from uh, our own uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, someone who was backed by uh, the Justice Democrats, uh, endorsed by the Seattle Democratic Socialists of America. You know, I mean, I would expect uh, someone like this, who's a congressman in New York, to have a pretty good uh, take on this or maybe just like not say anything at all. But he chose to say something. So let's read his statement here. As a black man, just trying to figure out the world, Colin Powell was an inspiration. He was from New York City, went to City College, and rose to the highest ranks of our nation, sending love, strength, and prayer to the family and friends of Secretary Powell. Rest in power, sir. Like when the smoking gun comes in the form of cringe. It's just like... Why do people feel the need to say anything, man? It's just like so unnecessary. Like think about making that statement just as us, right? As like nobodies. Um, Nonetheless, someone who, you know, claims to represent the left wing of the Democratic Party. You know, like this shit runs deep. It's not just Republicans lionizing this guy. It's not just like weird op-ed fucks on the Daily Beast uh, you know, or just journalists in the Daily Beast, uh, you know, hailing this guy or doing revisionism. It's, um, it, you would think that just seeing all of these takes, even from people ostensibly on the left, that, uh, this was like a really respectable man. And we're here to tell you that that's complete horseshit, that he never was. So that's, you know, uh, that's a, you know, fun little story about how America works. Um, what else is going on? We have some better news, Munya. Yeah, yeah, we got some. We got some better news. Um, Ten thousand John Deere workers uh, voted to go on strike. Uh, oh, yeah. All part of the UAW, United Auto Workers. Um, very, very awesome to see. Um, but something really funny happened that John Deere reacted. So John Deere has actually been, um, and for those who don't know, John Deere is like uh, the people who make the tractors, a really big agriculture uh, machine um, and, you know, vehicle company that's like the cream of the crop in terms of like agriculture um, vehicles and tools. Um and John Deere's business has been growing very rapidly uh, in these past few years. Like their stock has been um, growing tremendously as well. Um, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, there are people who run heavy machinery at John Deere. It requires real work and real skill. But, you know, 10,000 people just like striking, that's, uh, you know, it's pretty Old, and I think John Deere didn't really know what to do, but they had a brilliant idea saying, hey, you know, we had these blue collar workers who went on strike, but we have all these other heads too. 
We have Mike from HR. We have Linda <laughs> from sales. What, no. what, what if, what if, what if they no. just took their place and just we kept have, this have, engine we going? Pam. We have Pam. <laughs> Michael and Scott driving a, or like using they, uh, industrial machinery that makes tractors, like literally out sent engine. Michael Scott to like use these heavy Hell ass yeah. machinery. Okay. You, uh, you love, you, you know what this is? This is like. This is how dead the labor movement has been in America is management literally doesn't even get it yet. Like dude, these people are all, all these people running these companies and like are too young yeah. to even know what a strike is or yeah, exactly. like, the things you don't even bother to try, you know, like the, this is some, some idiot like business school uh, types. Like, you know what? I, I they're going to go on strike. Watch this. Yeah. And we're going to go we're down and show them how it's done. Yeah. And like, <laughs> like industry, it, you know, like, uh, yeah, has like, I think forgotten more. They've been so good at, you know, with the loss of like political power on the side of labor, any democratic input in this country, really. And then the perfection of like union busting of like prevention of unionization in America, they've had to forget all the other skills or just realities of what like labor organizing can do to their companies. I, I can't wait to see how well this goes. Tell me all about it, Maya. Yeah. So day one of Jim, Pam and Michael Scott uh, running this heavy <laughs> machinery. <laughs> In, in in the in the morning of day one, so this is the first few hours. Um, we have an incident where one of them crashed the tractor inside of the plant, and, oh, yeah. and <laughs> there's a, there's a, so even like driving a driving the tractor. They're driving I mean, the tractor. They, they managed to finish building one. Did they put like the last like decal <laughs> on it? Like it was sitting at the end of the production line. Yeah, right. Right. You know, it's I mean, that early in the morning. Like how much could they have done? Okay. So he's driving it off the production line. So he's driving it off the production line. The incident description says the tractor operator was pulling an eight R into the eight R repair bay, but didn't account for the front weights making contact with the utility post and crushing the two gang electrical box and scuffing the paint of the front <laughs> weights. <laughs> Uh, did it start any fires? I'm imagining some explosions <laughs> so, here. Am I getting too I mean, ahead of myself? I wish you were getting a little ahead of yourself, but, um, so that's, that's what happened there. Um, it seems like the same day, a different incident made a 911 call happen where a ambulance drove by the striking workers all the way to the, all the way to the uh, factory um, to tend to a different issue. That issue did not get leaked. So we do not know the details of what went down, but it was enough for an ambulance to come through. And um, there's like video of the ambulance like driving by. What the fuck? Yeah. The ambulance driver crossed the picket line. (laughs) (laughs) No, you cannot. No, I don't. Yeah. You can't cross the line. Whatever's happening past that picket line is nobody's business, including the fucking fire department. (laughs) Whatever's going on in there shouldn't be going on. So like you, you should be at, 
you should like cross a, I mean, cross a picket line and, you know, try to, you know, scab at your own fucking risk, dude. That should be, yeah. liability should be on you. You're, yeah. You should be I, taking your life into your fucking hands if you fucking scab. And, and you can see how, like, scared these scabs are and just how much they, they didn't think this through because they're all wearing, like, um, they all, like, have to drive out of work, obviously, right? You have to cross the line to get to work. Yeah. And um, they are photographed in these Phantom of the Opera masks. Um, oh, my God. What? Where they so like they can't be identified. Parties. Wait, what's the Halloween store spirit Halloween? <laughs> they went to Spirit Halloween. Went- they went to Archie McPhee. <laughs> they got <laughs> fucking scream masks and, like, uh, <laughs> fucking... It, yeah yeah so they're all wearing these like like, michael fucking myers yeah (laughs) michael myers looking asses like driving out of work each day can't even show their face because they're scared of uh of getting like retaliated from like the striking workers and you know people online they just don't want to be identified um it was just like so fucking hilarious on so many levels that there's an easier way to avoid all that hassle (laughs) yeah right I mean, like, look, man, like if you're if you're doing like tractor sales, that's great and all. You don't own the fucking company, my guy. Like, join the line, dude. Like, <laughs> it's, it's seriously, not, it's not. And like this, this goes to a bigger story on everyone's like, oh, this business is growing. Like, how come workers are striking? John Deere is like actually selling these talking points to media and media is buying it, saying that, um, you know, these workers make 60 to 70 K a year, which, you know, sounds great. Um, so Jonah Furman actually reports that uh, one worker who has been there for over a decade uh, showed him what he made in 2020 and it came down to under 40 K. So um, the wages that John, I mean, John Deere is peddling, uh, you know, misleading information, like outright lies that the media is reporting, but, you know, these workers, while John Deere grows a lot, while the CEO is making way well over a million dollars just in like, um, you know, salary compensation um, alone, uh, not to mention the capital gains of the stock and the stock grants that he's getting too. Um, you know, these workers are not really making, uh, you know, crap. Uh, there's also been layoffs despite John Deere's growth um, and the company's like business success arguably part of the reason why the stock has been going up too is they've been um, laying off a lot of uh, workers as well, uh, which puts a lot of pressure on, you know, uh, workers who are still employed because they have to pick up the remaining uh, labor that's supposed to be, let's say a five person job is now only two people there and they have to make up five people Um, while the pay has been either slashed or, uh, cut. And now that inflation is back in the mix, um, you know, just having your wages stay stagnant actually it constitutes sometimes a like a five percent pay cut. So yeah, you know the, the the working conditions at John Deere have been extreme. As the business grows, um, you know, you would arguably need more workers, um, but they're kind of doing the opposite. On of course I, in the in, in the spirit of maximizing profits of like short-term quarterly earnings. But this is just kind of how capitalism does work. And, you know, if you, but they're kind of forgetting that they're fucking with unionized staff and, you know, well, it's also, it, it's all management knows how to do at this point. I mean, 
these MBA cretins, like uh, they again, they don't know anything about what like a real labor movement is about. Yeah. Uh, so they think like, yeah, we'll we're going to go down to the shop floor. They also <laughs> they don't understand what's happening in the economy. Frankly, uh, not many people fucking do. I mean, even uh, uh, Janet Yellen the other day was like, uh, I don't know how inflation works. Uh, <laughs> and but like, I think all that like everything about how what um man what like management has been taught in the in the entire like neoliberal period is about keeping costs down that's their only purpose that's the only thing they know yeah yeah and that's what wall street demands too is just uh margins right and the basic margins is uh you know the amount of revenue you bring in uh minus the cost to get that revenue. And, you know, there's two ways you can do that. You can grow your business and, you know, feel, figure out a way for your revenue to grow faster than your costs grow. Even though your costs are going up, your revenue is growing up faster. That's a way to get larger margins. Um, another way is to figure out a way to efficiently just cut costs. Um, now, I think what you're saying, Greg, um, and what you're alluding to is that, MBA types will look at that and being like, well, fuck. I mean, if we have two options, either cut costs or try to just grow the business, why can't we just have our cake and eat it too? Why don't do we both. just do yeah. both? Why don't we yeah, grow exactly. and cut costs? And that is what yeah. is not unique to John Deere. That is what a lot of these corporations, especially in the publicly traded corporations are doing is that they are trying to grow their business while cutting costs and actually degrading their service whether that's making it more risky, whether that's in tech and the cloud computing, trying to cut costs around there, while, of course, it's a growing business as well. Um, that is kind of the name of the game. It's not even a matter of either or is why don't we do both? And that's what leads to, I mean, even ex- very extreme outcomes in a certain way. Yeah. It makes even the quality of the products more risky. It makes, I don't know, planes fall out of the sky um, yeah, you know, yeah. it, exactly. it connects to a lot of things. And that is the era. Um, that's the corporate era that we're living in right now. But on some level over the last like period, this has on some level worked for shareholders because you've had uh, a different economy than we find ourselves in right now, which is one where all these, all businesses, all their assets, all everything has just been financialized and leveraged. And you've had a kind of like uh, slow, steady economic growth that then, you know, is interrupted by some crisis. Um, but growth in actual like demand for products has been slow or declining, especially since right. like uh, 2008. But and then uh, but now, like where there's a huge spike in demand at a time when all these companies had fucking uh, laid off half or all of their workforces for covid. Uh, and lost all these people with all these skills, scattered them to the wind, as we've talked about ad nauseum, made them go find other ways to survive and now, whether whatever reason it is, a pent up demand from COVID or whatever, 
there is an enormous spike in demand for fucking everything. And these companies don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to, that is not the point at which you try to have your cake and eat it too. When you have, you've late previously laid off a bunch of workers, but now there's a, an explosion of demand. Uh, that's the time to just fucking like expand and pay people and get going. If you want to like actually make money and survive through that. But uh, this is like, a complicated thing about capitalism is like you can say shit like that all day, but you're like, and you can even talk about like how oh, in some way that's in some capitalist's interest. But like at the end of the day, there's like other like class uh, interests at work. And sometimes that interest is just to uh, sometimes the strongest interest is just to dominate the working class. And yeah. We've had a situation in America for so long where the working class has been so disciplined and dominated and management is so used to that, is so used to people having no choice but to take whatever shitty job and whatever shitty wage that they just don't even know how to react. They don't even know what to think. They don't even have it in their imagination that it could be okay in these economic circumstances to just hire a bunch of people and get production fucking humming efficiently. Um, even if you have to pay people a little more to come back to, to, to go and get into the workforce and learn these skills when they've already moved back in with their fucking parents, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard to get that through their head because you can, again, like talking about who's, you know, is what is in whose interest is, is very complicated. And yeah, sometimes like it doesn't make any logical sense. It doesn't make have to make any long term sense. Uh, they have their prerogatives, and it's to discipline labor, keep costs low, and grow if you can within that paradigm. And uh, yeah, they're just gonna keep crashing those fucking tractors, man. <laughs> yep, yep. And you know, I I really do like your point about disciplining labor, Greg, because uh, one of the things about John Deere, which is just so fascinating to me, is that. Um, Many of the workers don't even know how much they're making because John Deere just doesn't give them pay stubs anymore. Like you just, you what can't the get them unless you go through specific processes to print out the pay stub yourself, but it's not automatically oh provided to you. So not many how don't even know illegal? what they're getting. Paid. I, I, I am so you just get a check with thing. an amount on it. You just get a check. And but like you need oh like if you need to have to like request and like print it out physically on your okay. own for it to that be is, provided. They are begging, begging to be sued for wage theft because you're not you don't do that unless you are stealing wages. Yes, yes, and Which actually, is, it's uh, well, like this was um tried to be picketed over in 2016, but John Deere didn't even do anything. And like, so actually local leaders have been speculating that there's a ton of wage theft at John Deere. Um, like, you know, people like working out a title, like making lower pay than they're contractually owed as uh, Jonah. Mm -hmm. So aptly put it. Missing hours, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, because you just don't see the base up. So you don't know why you're, what check you're really getting. And so, I mean, Wage theft Fuck. at this corporate level, like we covered Pagliacci doing wage theft, right? Which was just like so blatant, you know, our like fa favorite, like small business pizza, you know, a publicly traded company like John Deere, like the scale of that is so much larger, so much even more nefarious and just like, 
um, yeah, I, it, it, it just affects so much, so many more people. And to do that in the face of a unionized staff, um, just again, just shows that even management doesn't really even know what the fuck is going on or even like what to do. Cause there's just been no real counter or, you know, power in labor for a while that even like within our memory, um, that I think that they might be valid for thinking that this could work because where's the examples of any pushback? Like that's just how beaten down the working class is right now is that, you know, capital at this point and bosses can just, uh, you know, just say, Hey, no more pay sub for 10,000 of my, our, our workers, uh, you know, on the factory floor. Yeah, well, it's, it's shit like this. It's just years and decades of increasingly, fucked up shit like this that doesn't even fucking come with a decent paycheck that's led people to this point that we're seeing this strike wave, you know, that's just one of so many like labor battles that are going on right now. And, uh, you, you, you gotta love to see it. I mean, I want to see more fucking, uh, Jim's and Pam's like playing chicken and losing <laughs> in a fucking, uh, thresher, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Striketober's here. It's amazing. I want to know who the PR agent was who, um, you know, pitched Good Morning America for the anchor to say, there's a resurgence in the militant labor movement. I'm like, there's no way Good Morning America wrote that. Like, that, 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 I'm just like, wow, labor actually has like a good PR now, too, man. Like, this is, this is for real, and this is awesome. I mean, the fucking lazy ass journalists for so many years, like, all they've, been doing a lot of them is you know copy and pasting um press releases from like cops and uh <laughs> the cia it's like they're so trained at this point like i mean if you give them a, a well-written press release that maybe they'll just read it you know yeah. even if it does yeah. say like you know no war but the class war yeah you know yeah. <laughs> You know, we could like we could leverage this decayed ass empire for good. You know, take 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 uh, the results of just like this neoliberal era of <laughs> of everyone just not even like having memory of the other side having any power, and you know, catch them while they're sleeping, give them a little right hook, knock them out. So I hope so. You know, I I it's it's encouraging. I can't wait to see you and follow more. Uh, I hope that this is indicative of more ways to come of more organizing and, you know, hopefully it could lead to something bigger. I mean, who knows? I'm just, uh, I'm just along for the ride and excited to see where, where it takes us. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm sure we'll have more, uh, strike and labor news for the rest of the year here. Hey, ballots have dropped in Seattle. Yeah, um, go vote. So everybody, touch paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, vote for uh, Nikita Council Position Nine. That's citywide. If you have a ballot in Seattle, you can vote for Nikita Oliver, uh, and uh, also you can vote for Nicole Thomas Kennedy for uh, city attorney. Um, two based choices. Absolutely. So yeah, everybody, go do that. Of course. Um, those campaigns are in like heavy get out the vote mode, which means they need uh, people canvassing. Um, you know, you can go to their websites, you can find them on Twitter, uh, get out there and knock some doors for those races. And, um, you I'll know, be down maybe there we next can have week. Some, 
So, you know. Oh, yeah, you're going to be back in town, yeah? Yeah, I'm going to be back in town, yeah. Cool. All right, we got to hang, Monia. Oh, of course, of course. Can't you can wait. come out to my hotel, uh, home too. Yeah, home too, baby. I haven't been to Tacoma um, in a while. It'll be fun. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll be back by then, I think. But oh, uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. All right, uh, everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, uh, yeah. Bye. Bye.